0: Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, where each week we're asking one of the artists who appeared at Hay 2021 to pick out their three favourite clips
1: from our archive. This week it's the turn of poet and professor of languages, Merered Hopwood.
2: Today is Hirviv Hav, the longest day, and I have attended a funeral. The pandemic restrictions lifted in Wales just in time for me to be allowed to make the trip from Cerfyrddin, Cymarddin to Trawsfynedd to pay respect and mark the passing of Gerald Williams. The funeral cars had left the farm towards the village where every single child from the school had lined the street in sombre silence. Then onto the cemetery where mourners and sheep waited. And Tidyr Jones, poet and family friend, paid a moving tribute to one who had kept a promise. A promise he made his grandmother. And she was Hedhwyn's mother. Geralt, pronounced with a G as in Gareth, not a J as in John, was his nephew. Keeping the promise meant that after her days he would welcome visitors from far and near into Er the farmstead, and his home, where the black chair of Birkin head was kept, a reminder of the hopelessness of war. Gerald cherished everything in that house the fireplace, the old piano, the kitchen table, everything other than the king's penny. That circle of metal, to echo Gerald's words, that every grieving family was given as what? Payment for the life of their sons. And apart from that penny and the chair, it was now as it had been then, that morning when the young Ellis Humphrey Evans had left home for Passchendaele, never to return. From the front, Ellis had sent a poem to the Nationalist Edward held just across the border in Birkenhead that year, 1917. The poem reached the adjudicators under the pseudonym Fleur de Lis and won. The poet Ellis, whose bardic name was the win Hath, meaning peace, such cruel irony, was already dead when his name was pronounced and a black cover was draped around his prize, the bardic chair. And so for my first extract, I should like to take you back to 2017 when the centenary of these events were marked in an excellent talk by Ivor Glyn who took Hethwin as his theme for the Gwynne Jones Hay Festival lecture. Gerald On the death of his mother, Hathwyn's sister, was brought up by his nine, his grandmother, and so missing a generation became a nephew-brother. And his upbringing was filled with memories of his mischievous, talented and sorely missed relative.
1: Mary Evans, his mother, was an unconventional mother, it would seem. After Hathwyn's sister died in the 1930s, her two eldest boys... Ellis and Gerald Williams, came to live with their nine and tide, Mary and Ivan Evans, their grandmother and grandfather. Now, they eventually inherited Raskun, and Gerald Gerald, is still showing people around to this day, and according to him, being raised by the same woman who raised their uncle, Hethwyn, could occasionally be similarly unconventional. According to Gerald, she would ask them, Haven't you got school today, boys? And they would reply, (laughs) <laughs> no, it's raining, nein. And that was the end of that. Hedwyn's otherworldly nature is constantly stressed by the Herald Reporter in his article. Hedwin was a young man who liked to retreat from society. Well, now, he was certainly shy at times and happy in his own company but he enjoyed socialising too. He would participate in public speaking competitions and led the farmers to victory against the quarrymen in one such contest. And he was in demand as an MC for concerts and Estée de Votin. But this isn't mentioned in the article because it doesn't sit quite so well with the image the reporter is trying to cultivate of a romantic poet on the edges of society. Hedwin was actually known locally for his ready wit, after an Estevod in Llanfestinyog, where he'd won three shillings for his englin on the Moilwyn, a local mountain, he took his friends to the pub to, to celebrate, to spend the prize money. And when they'd emptied their glasses, he announced, This is quite a feat. We've drunk a whole mountain in a quarter of an hour. <laughs> Another time, he'd been asked to officiate as the judge in a local Estevod. And as the closing date for the submission of the poems drew nearer, he noticed that no one had competed in one of the competitions. So he tipped off one of his friends. There's a 5 shilling prize going begging. Just enter and you're sure to win because I'm the judge. His friend said that he didn't have time to write anything. Okay, said Heathwin, I'll write the poem, you write it out and submit it and we'll split the winnings. So that's what they did. Now remember 5 shillings then would buy about 20 pints of beer. Now, on the night of the Estedford, when his friend turned up to hear the adjudication, he was mortified to hear Hethwin pulling the poem to pieces, (laughs) although he'd written it himself. It was juvenile and naive, awful stuff. However, as adjudicator, he felt it incumbent upon him to encourage young poets, however far from the mark they might be. So he would grudgingly, award the prize in full to the only competitor. His friend then had to do the walk of shame through a packed chapel to collect his five shillings, red as a beetroot, because the poem that he'd supposedly written had been so savagely criticised. And as he stepped off the stage afterwards, Heathwin whispered in his ear, see you in the pub tomorrow night. Now, Another aspect of the the Haithwynn story that we need to consider more carefully is his lack of education. Now, it's true that Haithwynn, like many of his contemporaries, left school at 14. And his attendance there, it would seem, was patchy before that. But we should be wary of overemphasizing his lack of education. As well as enjoying the company of his contemporaries in the pub, he also sought out the company of more educated men, local ministers, journalists, and older poets. He would go fishing with the minister of religion, Céline Roberts, and it was he, it seems, who first introduced him to the principles of socialism. Hedwyn enjoyed reading the works of Shelley, and his last poem, Er Arur, uh, is influenced by Prometheus Unbound and by the revolt of Islam. He took every chance to better himself, and if he was lacking in education, he was far from being uncultured. But the key element, of course, in the Headwind story is the tragic nature of his death. He died for his country and been denied the fruits of his labors because of it. He never got to sit in his chair and enjoy the adulation of his fellow countrymen. Now, that's how most people would have seen it at the time. But with each passing year, he's come to be seen more and more as a symbol of the terrible waste that is war, the terrible waste in general. Heathwin came to symbolise a whole generation of talented young men who'd been cut down in their prime, and the empty chair at Araskorn represented the empty chairs that could be found at every hearthside, and the hiraith for sons and husbands who would never return from the trenches. And as the Great War becomes ever more further removed from our direct experience, and we, we struggle to conceive of the scale of the losses that were endured, Heathwin helps to Personalize the wider tragedy for us today. It's incredibly difficult to comprehend the loss of thousands of men in one day. It's much easier to try and understand one man's tragedy. One man's tragedy. Just as an individual like Anne Frank can give us an insight or some insight into the overwhelming experience of the Holocaust, Hedwin helps us to understand the tragic waste of war. Interest in Heathwin in Wales has increased, if anything, in the last few years. He offers us a Welsh angle on the British commemoration of the First World War. However, remembering the past should not blind us to the present. Taking busloads of pupils to France and Flanders to visit cemeteries and battlefields is a valuable reminder of the waste of war. But it also can reinforce the idea of us and them. In remembering Haithwynn in the context of the Great War, are we colluding unwittingly with a wider propaganda that sets forth memorable British events of the past to confirm us in a new post-European project, extra-European project even, dare I say it, anti-European? Well, I hope not. And if we are watchful, it will not. Because History has always been bent to some kind of an agenda, be it the Whig interpretation of history, the Marxist interpretation of history. Of course, the best historians are at least open about their precepts. And if we make sure that our politicians are too, then it shouldn't be a problem. Meeting Belgians recently who were deeply interested in Herthwin was most heartwarming. We should remember that Herthwin's last chair was carved by a Belgian refugee from Mechelen, Eugène van Fleteren, and the welcome extended to the quarter of a million Belgian refugees who, like van Fleteren, sought refuge in Britain in 1914-18, has obvious lessons and obvious parallels for us today. One of my favourite examples is a Flemish language advert in a 1914 Ilford newspaper that advertised free haircuts for refugees. It would be nice to think that similar kindnesses could be extended today. It would be anachronistic to claim Hedwin as a Latter-day Europhile, although in one of his last letters home, he does record having met Russian soldiers. And as someone with socialist sympathies, he was fascinated by how their country was experiencing a sudden awakening from an ancient bondage, as he put it. However, he was certainly a man of peace. And I'd like to leave you with a strangely prescient extract from that same letter home from France, one of the last that he wrote. The most beautiful thing I have seen since coming here is an old shell case that had been adapted to grow flowers. And doesn't that prove that beauty is stronger than war and that loveliness will prevail over anger? But the flowers of France in the future will be flowers of sadness and a sad wind will blow over the land because the flowers will be the color of blood and the wind will be full of the sound of mourning. Diolcham Marianne.
2: Hey, a man of peace. And in the retelling of his story, it has future and onwards, and so to hope. For me, one of the most obvious Hay Festival sessions on hope is one from last year, where Lily Cole interviews Rutger Bregman about his book Humankind. Listening back, I smiled as they talk about the toilet paper crisis at the beginning of the pandemic. I had forgotten about that. Their discussion of the genuine third way is inspiring. Cynicism is out, hope is in.
0: We live in a different world now where you can actually believe in a bigger state in terms of redistribution, in giving people the rights to make their own choices in their lives, but a smaller state in terms of paternalism. Right. And I think a a pretty good example of that is basic income because basic income is this marriage between left-wing ideas and right-wing ideas. You know, it's left-wing in the sense that you pull people out of poverty, right? Living a life without without poverty becomes a right instead of a favor. But then some people see it as right-wing in the sense that you get the freedom to decide for yourself what you want to make of your lives. So, yeah, in both of my books, Utopia for Realists and A Humankind, I'm looking for this sort of genuine third way, you know, not the, the, the Tony Blair third way, but sort of a genuine third way um, that, you know, may, may help us forward.
3: Yeah, no, no, I, I sense that, and I really love that and appreciate that. Um, and I think it's been maybe just in my perspective, but it feels like it's been a narrative missing from the mainstream. It feels that like there's been a very binary conversation in politics. Yeah, I between
0: absolutely the, agree. Right?
3: market, yeah. government, capitalist, communism
0: yeah.
3: um, kind of false
0: narrative. I, I, I think it's changing, though, because, I mean, it just takes it takes some time, right? to sort of To sort of change the world. It often takes a whole generation. But then if you look at, you know, people who are now in their early 30s or in their 20s, you know, they're not traumatized by the Cold War. You know, they were born just before the fall of the Berlin Wall or after that even and when they say "ooh, that is communism," then we say, "whatever," you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't really work anymore. So we're not that dogmatic about about all these concepts and ideas anymore.
3: I like the attempt in the book to like reclaim communism as a word because it's quite a bold thing to do. I think there is still a bit of a hangover around what communism means. My history politics teacher in school used to always say. Communism, as it was written originally, has never been tested. Like every version of it we've ever seen historically, has been a kind of um, a, a weird version of it, um, as you outline yeah. too. And, yeah, and yeah, yet yeah. we've managed to kind of collectively brand that word communism and anarchism, I'd say, in very specific colours. Um, and there's yeah. an interesting I think exercise to do. And you you talk about with every kind of phrase everyday communism of maybe like reclaiming that language and helping Mm -hmm. people see it's not it's not the vision of it that we were painted by Stalin and Lenin and um, no no no
0: and and obviously I'm teasing a little bit there right it's 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 a bit of a provocative statement but if you think it through and you think about sort of what is the definition of communism well it's basically sharing the good stuff in life and contributing according to your abilities and and taking according to what you need Well, we do that a lot of the time. You know, if you look at how households are organized, how companies are organized internally, if we sort of would have to draw up contracts for all our transactions all the time, right? You're sitting at a table and you say to someone, oh, pass me the salt. And that person says, okay, well, sure, I'll draw up the contract, please sign here. I mean, that would be impossible to live in. So we have sort of this daily communism. And on top of that, we have the market and the state. But without sort of this strong foundation of, sharing and 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 interacting with each other on this on this daily basis you know the market in the state couldn't even exist um Mm -hmm. but yeah this whole word has obviously become tainted in 20th century but sort of really historically existing communism i mean that's like horribly violent corrupt regimes genocidal regimes etc etc but Mm -hmm. if you sort of look up the definition of communism in the oxford dictionary that's something very different obviously
3: so my book um, I mentioned was born out of a project I did many years ago trying to set up a gift economy online mm-hmm. and Penguin to write about it. And so part of the book focuses on on the gift economy and that experience. And interestingly, when I was doing it, the UK government had a statistic um, that came out of their behavioral economics unit that the amount of things mm-hmm. that people do for free for each other in the UK was already bigger than GDP. And it's just this yeah, huge shadow yeah. that we, yeah. um, we don't yeah. necessarily recognize. We don't uh, in the same way as we do with GDP, obviously.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole concept of the economy, the economy is not some natural thing. It was invented in the 1930s because the government and experts wanted to, you know, combat the great depression. Uh, so it's been a very useful concept in that regard, especially during the second world war, because it sort of helped in this case, the United States to produce as many bombs and grenades and airplanes as possible. But uh, you know, newsflash: we're not. It's not the Second World War anymore. So now there are other things that are way more important in life. Some things that can't be quantified, right? Um, and uh, I think the the great tragedy, or I mean, the big injustice here, is that most of the really valuable work that is not included in GDP has historically been done by women, right? And um, actually, Diane Cole, Coyle, if I pronounce that correctly, she's written this fantastic history of GDP, where she just shows how ideological that concept is. And we hear about it every single time. You know, now in this crisis, people, you know, it's in the news every time. Oh, economic growth going up or going down. It's a recession, etc. But yeah, what I've really learned in the past couple of years from studying, you know, brilliant writers like her is that you have to focus on the real economy. You know, what are people actually doing with their lives, with their times? Uh, because I mean, in the end, time is sort of the really valuable thing. You know, that's the really scarce thing. Um That we should be thinking about, and and once you start doing that, then so much of the debate around the economy starts to look so silly and so strange
3: mm-hmm. yeah um, you mentioned a news flash. I thought it was really interesting in your advice at the end of the book that you encourage people not to read the news. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think we can change the narrative so if if I 'm on board with you and we believe that human nature is much more kind Of positive and good at source than people give credit to, and that accepting mm-hmm. that would then influence how we shape our institutions. Um, what do you feel like needs to be done beyond writing books and maybe making films? I mean, congratulations, I know your, your um, viral success um, mm-hmm. a few weeks ago with um, the real Lord of the Flies story has been bought into be made into a film. Um, do you think film books, like, what are the ways that we can try and change the narrative around mm-hmm. what human is? Um, So we might see some impacts in politics.
0: You know, I think that in the end, we are the stories that we tell ourselves. And for centuries, for millennia even, we've been telling each other really cynical stories. Uh, And, you know, Lord of the Flies is just one one example here. This really influential novel published in the 50s by William Golding about kids that shipwreck on an island and turn into monsters and animals. That sort of... seems to prove that civilization is only a thin veneer and that deep down yeah we're all these sadistic monsters um that was uh, sort of that novel was just another version of a very very old idea that's so deeply embedded in our culture that goes back all the way to the ancient greeks that you find with the christian church fathers you know the concept of original sin for example basically the same idea you find it with enlightenment philosophers it's, I think, at the heart of our capitalist system today that people are selfish and that we have to design our companies and the marketplace, et cetera, around that idea. Um, and so, yeah, we, we sort of become the stories that we tell ourselves. These, these can become self-fulfilling prophecies. So how do you change the world? Well, maybe it starts with telling different stories. And um, so for the book, I thought, you know, has it ever happened? A real life Lord of the Flies? Uh, have kids ever, like, really shipwrecked on an island? And to my total surprise, I found found one case study in 1965 and 66 that six Tongan kids, Tonga as is an island group in the Pacific Ocean, uh, survived you know, for 15 months and uh, cooperated and became the best of friends. Now, the funny thing about this whole story is that obviously, I mean, from a scientific standpoint, it's the weakest part of the book, right? It's like one story from a long time ago. I mean, it's not like... The end is, is quite small. It's not a meta-analysis or anything. There's no control group. I mean, it's not, it's not science. But it's such an incredibly powerful story, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that's uh, sort of what we, what we need right now, these kind of stories. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that, uh, and happy that, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, love the story as well, and that now uh, it's gonna be a movie.
3: Yeah, no, congratulations. Um, Why do you think, I was was kind of questioning this myself, reading it, why do you think, and if you spend time, why do you think that that negative news and salacious stories do have tended to sell better? Like, why was the Stanford -hmm. Stanford Prison Experiment um, Mm -hmm. um, kind of like, you know, why did these narratives, which are much more dark and kind of negative, Mm -hmm. capture public imagination Mm -hmm. in ways that cute stories or sweet stories have struggled Mm -hmm. to?
0: a lot to say about this i think i'd focus on two things in the first place human beings have this negativity bias right so we tend to focus more on the negative than on the positive it's just the way it is right evil is stronger than good um the good can win though by with an overwhelming force of of majority right but evil is stronger you know it just makes a bigger impression uh, on us i mean uh, we've all experienced that in our own lives if you get I mean, I, I experience this, like you get 100 compliments on Twitter, like, oh, great book or nice review, blah, blah, blah. And it's oh, nice. And then there's one nasty piece of criticism. And that's the thing that keeps bugging you, right? And that keeps you up at night. Um, so I guess it's sort of the news really feeds into that, that it just sort of triggers this negativity bias over and over again. So if you watch a lot of the news, uh, at the end of the day, you'll have a very cynical and depressed worldview. Um there's even a term for this in psychology. They call it mean world syndrome. Um, it's, a, it's a strange thing. You know, if, if the news would be invented today and sort of the health authorities would have to decide whether they can sort of uh, allow this pro- product that we call the news on the market and they would look at the side effects, they would probably say, no, 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 this is way too dangerous. You know, it causes anxiety and, and the feelings of depression and cynicism, etc. No, this is not good for our society. You know, we're not going to allow this. But here we are. 90% of the population consumes it. So I guess that's um, that's one important reason. Uh, I'm giving way too long answers, but there's one other, <laughs> other thing I was thinking about. It's sort of that this 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 negative worldview is is also in the interest of those in power. Right. So if you have an hierarchical society then it is in the interest of those at the top for the rest of the population to believe that most people can't be trusted. Because that legitimizes their power, right? We need them if we are nasty. Now, if most people are pretty decent, then maybe we don't need them anymore.
3: And those people probably do believe it, <laughs> you know?
0: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Something I quite like in your book too that there isn't this. There's a danger sometimes of, of demonizing the other, even if it's the mm-hmm. people at the top. And um, mm-hmm. and I feel like try to understand why people make negative decisions and negative choices, even if they appear mm-hmm. evil. Um, yeah, because then, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, being misled, rather than being innately evil. Would that be a correct way to summarize? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, if we if we go back to the anarchist idea that most people are pretty decent, but power corrupt, well we've got a huge amount of evidence from the for the first statement you know from psychology anthropology archaeology sociology you name it that most people are pretty decent but also for the second statement power corrupts you know mm-hmm. this is something that you know most historians and sociologists and psychologists really agree on um it, it's even been been proven you know with brain scans that if you look at people who are in a powerful position and you put them in a brain scanner what you see is that they're Brains are almost literally damaged, right? So, sort of the regions that are uh, involved with feelings of empathy, for example, they don't really work anymore. Or the regions that are all about mirroring other people, right? People mirror each other time. You know, I yawn. Is that how, how do you pronounce it? Yawn, right? <laughs> yawn, yeah. Uh, or uh, I, uh, yeah, what, what else can you mirror? It's sort of you touch you, you touch your hair, you scratch something. People sort of imitate each other all the time. And you can see that in, in, uh, in the brain as well, with the so-called mirror neurons. Now, if you look at that process in the brains of those who are very powerful, it doesn't really seem to work that well anymore. So it's almost as, as if they have become like disconnected from the rest of society, right? They're not plugged in anymore. Uh, and that's really, um, I mean, that's that's a huge problem, obviously, because this, the true superpower of human beings is that, that we're so incredibly well-connected, right? individually we're not very special but collectively you know when we are connected we can do extraordinary things
3: there's this beautiful practice you may have come across in your research that um a friend of mine called james sussman who's an anthropologist told me about that the sand bushman huh. in he's a friend they,
0: uh, i'm a huge admirer yeah, of his work
3: oh i yeah. put you in touch yeah, i i think he'd like your work i mean he's probably familiar with it huh. um,
0: he's written a book about the, the the kalahari the the song right yeah,
3: yeah and he's got a new yeah. one coming out about what yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, he um, he talks about insulting the meat. I don't know if you've heard of this tradition, where mm-hmm. if, uh, it's so important to keep the kind of equanimity in the tribal community um, that if a hunter would catch, you know, would catch meat and bring it back, it would be a tradition for the group to insult him invariably and insult mm-hmm. the size or the whatever of the of the catch yeah, yeah, um, yeah. as a way to ensure that nobody got kind of no one gained power because they were stronger, you know, or just because they were physically yeah. able to do that. It was a way of keeping a balance within the group. Yeah, um, I think yeah. it's super interesting, and it's something I, I have explored a lot um, in, in my writing, is the, that juncture point when private property um, happened, i.e. when nomadic mm-hmm. tribes settled, and you started to have inequality arise because you have a slightly bigger mm-hmm. heart, you have a heart to hide mm-hmm. your things inside, um, and then that fundamentally changed roles it arguably gave birth to the patriarchy and the imbalance between Mm -hmm. women and men um, you know created all kinds of imbalances.
2: I opened with Gerald Williams let's close with another Williams this time Raymond Williams and to this year's festival and the discussion between Daniel Williams Leanne Wood and Michael Sheen they're launching Professor Daniel's new edition of Who Speaks for Wales it's a good question and one for us participants and organisers of Gwyla Hay Festival. In this conversation, there is talk of a politics of hope and I am reminded of Raymond Williams's oft-quoted phrase about the importance of making hope practical rather than despair convincing. To that, perhaps I can add that we need to see hope not as a passive sitting back and crossing fingers kind of wishful thinking. But rather as an action as a force that enables us to do two things first of all to imagine that better place secondly to find the way to get there let's listen and act we haven't
4: mentioned the uh, pandemic at all but Raymond was always interested in the way in which um, new situations called for new reactions div- mm. and resulted in new forms, new forms of political activism, new forms of expression in the arts. Um, thinking, Michael, of, of Stage with David Tennant, which you've right, been yeah. running as, as a sort of uh, dramatic Zoom conversation, mm. is an example, right, of a, of a new kind of art developing from this moment. Do you see things like that continuing? I mean, is there going to be an artistic legacy of this uh, pandemic
5: period? Well, I think, I mean, in a way it's, it's, it's an expression of the enforced innovation, you know, that has come out of, of the pandemic more generally, isn't it? So, you know, in, in terms of what the area that I have been working in, it came out as, as staged and, you know, filming something in my kitchen. Um, I'm only not down there now because the baby's having a lunch. So I'm not allowed to be in the kitchen. Otherwise I'd be coming for you live from the set of stage. <laughs> um, but, uh, but that idea of, of having to adapt to new circumstances, and draw on um, again that 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 being local that being specific that being particular kind of thing so going here here is the reality of the context i'm in even though staged is a version of reality it's not our actual reality Um, but i'm being innovative and 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 trying to connect in that way Um, but that is one manifestation of a much more general thing and uh, you know leanne will be able to tell you far more about this about what's been going on in the communities that she um, represents but just that that combination of um a set of values where you go if someone is suffering over there i i want to help if someone in my you know in my context in my place is finding it difficult then we help we we do what we can we give what we can and and we connect up and we you know and the the difficulties of that during a pandemic where you're not physically allowed to connect up in in the same way You have to innovate around that. And the innovation that I've seen in in the community here, and like I say, Leanne, I'm sure you can talk about this a lot more, but it is extraordinary. And I think Williams, my sense is that he would see this um, period of time, obviously as a terrible, dark, tragic time in in many, many ways, in most ways. But I think he would also see the opportunity and be galvanized by that because that idea of having to let go of baggage you know when we in in knowing that i was going to be coming and talking about this today i kept i kept panicking in a little way because i thought "Well, i'm not I, I don't know enough about what's been going on i'm not informed enough i'm not i haven't thought through everything i've and then i thought you know what the pandemic has sort of in a strange way wiped a sort of a slate now in many ways of course And most importantly, it hasn't. It has exacerbated what was already there. That's, if anything, that's something that comes across, you know, again and again to me, is that all the inequalities, all the injustices, all the unfairness, all the unevenness that was there before has only been made more extreme now. But in another way it has done it has partly done that thing that williams talked about about having to let go of the baggage you have to let go of certain things that were going on before and go right this is the new set of circumstances and we have to adapt we have to find a way to meet the needs of what is going on right now and how we do that is based on us as a community what are our values what are our traditions what are we drawing on in order to meet this unknown that is happening and in that, I feel there is a kind of a renewal and a, and a re-emergence of culture that you talked about, you know, in your introduction, Daniel, that, that, the, that our Welsh story, our Welsh history is, is about discontinuities. And if, and, and if we're not going through a discontinuity now, I don't know what it is, but it does mean that there is the opportunity to start again. And what do we use as a template to start again? How do we build back up in a way that has a, a, a truer representation of who we are on a local level and I think Leanne is absolutely right and, and, and Williams absolutely talks about this and lays a sort of a blueprint down for it in a way that it is about finding new forms of of, of cooperative work and education of of people who have a strong sense that they are in control of their own lives their own places their own use of uh, the, the use of their own energies and resources if you have a sense of that then then you know anything is possible you can have the kind of confidence in your present and the future that williams talked about and and his stark warning of course was that if you don't have that, if people don't have that sense that they are in control of the use of their own energies and resources and and, and a sense of uh, making decisions about their own place. I, I think he said in, in one of the things that, that just uh, sent a chill through me when I read it first, he said, otherwise this complex industrial society will smash itself up um, out of bitterness and hatred, not in spite of the sense of union that we have but because of the 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 enforced inauthentic sense of union that does not allow for people to feel that they have that connection to their place and that their own energies and resources are in their own control you know and that when i first read that i I sort of i sort of had to put the book down and just sort of sit there for a minute because i thought that is exactly he was writing that in in uh, in i think 81 or something and it, it was the most clear and, and powerful description of, of the time that we are going through that I had come across.
4: Yeah, he's, he's, he's always aware of the pressures, but he never becomes completely hopeless, right? There's, yeah. there's always that sense of drawing on the resources of the past to create a, a vision of the future. Yeah. Leanne, you've described you know the communitarianism of your politics and community activism. Is, it, has the pandemic um, reinforced the beliefs you already had or is there a sense of of a shift and and the the need for a new kind of politics coming out of this now
6: well i think that um concept of of communities gaining strength by struggling through a diversity that um Raymond has talked about is um exactly what's been going on here because um in the rwand we not just not only did we have the covid pandemic but we, that was preceded by horrific floods, you know, 400 properties nearly were flooded. And um, the response to that, I mean, it was a horrific, horrific uh, event, but the hope that came out of that was was in the strength of the community response to it. So money was raised, um, cleaning products were provided, help was provided, um, hundreds of people wanted to provide support you know, clothes were donated, toiletries, um, everything you can possibly think of. The the community just moved into action, and again, social media enabled all of that to be um, organised. It was a very, it was a, a force for 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 positivity and good. So whilst there has been incredible tragedy in our communities here, we've we've seen some of the highest death rates from Covid. And um, we've also seen some of the highest levels of community activity right at the very beginning of the pandemic. I realised after years of austerity, the support system simply weren't in place for people who may not be able to go shopping, who may not be able to leave their houses for for months. So um, uh, myself and a a group of us um, uh, as Plaid Cymru counsellors as well um, put together a a network of community organisers so 600 people signed up in the end to organise just in their street to check who was in the street who needed regular shopping, prescription collections collect their phone numbers um, so that it could be done on a minimum contact basis. And the people just everywhere were scuttling around, um, queuing in in pharmacies, getting uh, shopping items, essential items for people, just providing that phone call to check it all right. And do you know what? It's still going on. There are still people I'm meeting today who tell me that they're receiving a a regular call off the person who was set up to be their street volunteer. So it just... It it fills me with so much hope for what's possible because those are strengths that can be built on. They're not things that can be bought or paid for. These are um, good deeds and compassion in people who just want to help other people because they know that when things are difficult, if their house was flooded, they would want to call upon that help as well. And so they are prepared to provide that almost as an insurance policy, because they could be needing that at some point in the future. And when everyone does that, it's hugely, hugely powerful and it's something incredible to build on. So in terms of the um, the question that you asked, has the pandemic reinforced my political beliefs? Um, yes, it has, because I've always believed in the power of people in communities and the strength from community spirit. And this has just reinforced what I've always believed to be possible.
5: There's a thing that Williams wrote at one point, and I can't remember where he was, but he, he talked about the idea of a of the of the sense of communality in Wales being different to that of, let's say, England or whatever, that there was something specific to the Welsh people, partly because of their history, I suppose, or their histories, um, that lent itself to a sort of communality. And and he talks at one point about the whatever it was that allowed when non-conformism came across the border into Wales, what the Welsh did with it, how they responded to it, the same with trade unionism, that there was he talks about a longing and a readiness and a sort of potentiality, a sense of of, of possibility within Welsh people that when an idea like non-conformism or trade unionism comes along that they connect to, they kind of you know do it, yeah, it at an accelerated rate yeah there's a sort of like extraordinary turbo boost version of it and that is something that i think no matter how many defeats no matter how much the country has been sort of beaten down in many ways and uh as williams would describe it that sense of readiness that that is connected to a sense of longing for something and and that sense of potentiality the resilience that is there is something that strikes me again and again and again about the people in Wales and communities and and you know and and, the, and what Leanne's talking about. I mean the fact that on the first day of the twentieth century, on the on the Western Mail and and you have this in the in the book, the the Western Mail talks about the Rhondda Valley, on the first day of the twentieth century, and says a mere hundred years ago, no one would have thought that this sleepy sort of, you know, ignored little area would become the, the most vibrant, powerful, you know, meaningful community, not only in Wales, but possibly in the world. To read that, and then to know the story of the Rhonda Valley th- since that, those people have to be resilient, don't they? They have to, you know, I mean, I mean the fact that they are ready to, to 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 spring into action in the way that Leanne describes during this period of time, having gone through so many shocks and traumas and discontinuities, as William describes, I think does talk, speak to what Williams describes as that inherent thing that is different, it is different, it's not the same as as what's going on in England or even Scotland or, 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 or Ireland in, in this union. The Welsh have a particular history, they've gone through particular things and that has led to a legacy that one of the most positive things about it is this sense of like ready to renew, ready to regenerate. And if if the structure that they're able to do that within allows them to fully you know engage in that in a way that's meaningful to them and each place that they come from, then there is no stopping what we can do. I, I really do think that.
4: Well, that is a powerful articulation of a politics of hope, uh, Michael. Um, let me just thank you both um, very warmly for joining me uh, today. Um, Raymond's emphasis on community, on, on rootedness as the basis for global change, um, I think has been very strongly uh, co- communicated. He talks of militant particularism or a particular movement, be it Black Lives Matter, um, be it the Welsh language campaign, be it civil rights in Ulster, he, he draws these lines together, um, arguing that you can have a particular movement, a particular movement for change based on the particular experience of a people that nevertheless is the basis for a much wider kind of social change, the particular and the universal that you talked about, uh, Michael, and that uh, Leanne embodies in a sense in her political activism. So thank you both. Um, Who Speaks for Wales has uh, just been released uh, by the University of Wales Press. Can I encourage you to to buy it as as a final sort of uh, plug? Um, But thank you for joining us and thank you Leanne and Michael for joining me. Thanks for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you
1: by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers and you can hear thousands of other recordings over on the Hay Player on our website.